You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Well, I invite you to return to Luke chapter 19. We're going to begin reading with verse 28 and read through the end of the chapter. And when he, that is Jesus, when Jesus had said these things, Jesus went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, Jesus sat on it. Or they set Jesus on it, I'm sorry. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Heavenly Father, we look to you in this hour. We look to you in this moment. We look to you, O Father, to be our teacher and our guide as we come to, for many of us, a very familiar passage of Scripture. Father, Lord, nevertheless, you would speak to us through this, Father, that we'd see that there are still many things to be learned and many more to be reminded of. Well, Father, we ask that you would be pleased, Lord, to uh, speak to our hearts and to do that work which you see fit needs to be done in our hearts. So we meditate on this, this holy passage of Scripture. So, Father, we look to you to be our teacher, our guide, our healer, our redeemer. Oh, Father, Transform us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I think all of us probably understand that it is not only possible, but actually quite common to come to Jesus with the wrong idea of who Jesus really is. It's not only uh, possible, but it's actually quite common. And this text really sets that before us, doesn't it? Now, those of you who are familiar with this text know where I'm going. And those who are not familiar with it will soon know 
why I say these things. Many come to Jesus with the wrong idea who, who he really is. And if you come to Jesus with the wrong idea of who he really is, you're, you're really in a lot of danger. Why would I say that? Because um, if your hopes are set on Jesus being a certain way and then you discover he's not the way you thought he was going to be, then what's going to happen? You're either going to discover him as he is or you're going to fall away. Uh, this crowd that is praising and worshiping Jesus on this hillside is um, going to change their attitude towards him pretty quickly. Not all of them. Not all of them. But many of them. Um, so our hearts, as I said in my, in my prayer, our hearts are always more than ready to invent a Jesus that, 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 that tickles where we itch or scratches where we itch, if you will. We're always, our hearts are always ready to invent a Jesus or a custom Jesus, if you will, and we need to be on our guard about that. Um, we, we have to receive Jesus as he's offered to us uh, in the gospel now, when we, uh, we look to our text here this morning, one of the first things we're reminded of is something that I brought up last week. If you look at verse 28, we're told that there Jesus went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now, why is that significant? Because last week I pointed out all the way back in chapter 9, verse 51, uh, there Jesus set his face towards what? Jerusalem. That's right. And one of the distinctives of Luke's gospel is that he traces these steps. Beginning in, in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, he traces those steps on the way to uh, Jerusalem. And that's for, from, from chapter 9 all the way through to this point in, in verse 28 of chapter 19. That's what Luke's been doing. We, if, you're, if you're reading along, you're reading along as Luke traces those steps where Jesus comes out of his Galilean ministry in the north and works his way down into uh, the city of Jerusalem. And now at verse 28, he has arrived and Luke is now bringing to a close the journey to Jerusalem and he's opening up what we would call the passion of Christ. We might call that the passion if we were uh, outlining Luke, and that's often the way it is outlined here. Jesus is now, he's not in the city, but he's only a couple of miles outside of the city. He's basically arrived to come and to accomplish that which he has come to accomplish. Now we're told in verse 29 that when he drew near to Bethphage, the exact location of Bethphage, I still don't think we're certain about. Uh, we don't know, but Bethany's easy enough. Bethany's only about two miles out of Jerusalem. Uh, just up on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And we're told that Jesus is now near the Mount that is called Olivet. And many of us know the story. In verse 29, Jesus sends two of his disciples saying, go into the village uh, in front of you. On entering this village, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat and tie it and bring it here. Verse 31, if anyone asks you why you're untying it, you should say this, and I think the disciples are probably thankful that, that Jesus added that caveat. Do you imagine giving the assignment, hey, I want you to go into this town that's you know, just a yonder, and I want you to, uh, you'll find a cult tied there, untie it and bring it to me, you know. And uh, In the Old West, something like that could get you hung, couldn't it? That would be horse rust, wrestling. Um, um, those were the cars of the day. This would be kind of like getting a truck, I mean, to put in, 
And, you know, I want you to go over to uh, Wellsville, and you'll, you, as soon as you enter town, you're going to find a little Ford Ranger. Uh, the keys are under the mat. Could you grab it and bring it to me? Uh, yeah. Oh. So Jesus tells him, listen, if anyone should ask you why you're, why you're untying it, say, say the Lord has need of it. So verse 32, of course, they find things just the way Jesus had told him. And in verse 33, as they're untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying it? And they responded the way they were told, the Lord has need of it. And they bring it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. In verse 36, as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude, notice the multitude. There's a multitude present. Now, where does this multitude come from? And one of the reasons why I wanted to return to John's gospel is because that answers the question. And uh, there, there's something really significant taking place here. In John chapter 11, Jesus uh, heals Lazarus. In fact, he raises Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus had been dead for four days. Now, as we can imagine, uh, uh, there, the, the, the grieving process and the mourning process in the, in the ancient world was much unlike our modern grieving process. People gathered around and they would grieve for some time. And uh, when Jesus arrives, that is when he arrives at, at Lazarus' home, uh, he finds, as we read in the text, he finds Lazarus' sisters grieving and people are grieving and people are gathered around. And it's well established that Lazarus has been in the, in the tomb. Uh, he's been dead for four days. And uh, Jesus first shows compassion with everybody. He actually joins in the weeping, doesn't he? Which really reveals the heart of Jesus. And then he orders the stone to be removed. And the stone is removed, and he commands Lazarus to come out. And what does Lazarus do? He comes walking out in his burial cloth. We can only imagine how something like the, the word of something like that would circulate. Now, the timing of it is taking place when there's already a multitude of people uh, swelling into Jerusalem during the, for the feast, the feast of Passover. Uh, during these feasts, the population of Jerusalem would just swell and burst at the seams. So you have all of these people coming into Jerusalem. And uh, you have uh, a crowd already gathering as word uh, spreads that Lazarus has been raised from the, from the dead. Now, this word is being circulated. People are coming into Jerusalem and and, uh, you know, you, you, as you go into Jerusalem, someone says, hey, did you hear the news? Or well, what news? Well, yeah, there's this guy, I think his name's Lazarus. He's up in Bethany, I think. And he was dead and he was in the tomb for four days. And, and uh, the one they called Jesus, uh, he, he ordered the stone to be removed. And he commanded uh, that uh, Lazarus come out. And, he, and he, he rose up from the dead and he come walking out. We're going to go up after a bit and see the guy. If you want to come, you're welcome to come. Bring the kids. That's the kind of thing that's taking place. And this is happening up on the Mount of Olives as well. So there's this crowd forming. And make no mistake, the Lord is using this. He is using this to bring this crowd together. And we have a crowd up on, up on the Mount of, uh, of, of Olives following Jesus as he descends down in to uh, Jerusalem. And we have a crowd that's coming up out of Jerusalem 
that comes up and converges with Jesus on the hillside. In all of this, we read Zechariah 9 and verse 9 this morning just to be reminded that what Jesus is doing is fulfilling an ancient prophecy. He's fulfilling an ancient prophecy. And we'll also be reminded of the, of the car that Jesus is driving. What is he driving? He's not driving a tank with a big howitzer on the front of it. He's riding on a donkey, which is symbolic that he comes in peace. Now, there's something else here that we should note before we go further, that this is actually a little bit unusual for Jesus to have this big, if we might call a fanfare. Uh, you know, you read the Gospels, and in many places in the Gospels, you might, especially early on, find yourself confused because oftentimes Jesus will perform a miracle, and after He performs the miracle, He'll look to the recipient of the miracle, you know, say, listen, I don't want you to tell nobody about this. Go off and don't tell nobody. Now, as soon as you tell somebody not to tell someone, what do they go and do? they got to go blab it everywhere. And it was what they do. But my point is, Jesus is really, he's not interested in this big fanfare. You know, he doesn't, uh, you know, one, uh, one story where Jesus is doing all this healing in this particular location, and he wakes up really early the next day before anyone is up, and he goes off and he prays and spends some time in pray and then prayer, and then his disciples are looking for him. And I think finally Peter finds him and says, Lord, everyone's looking for you. The whole city's out here. And what's Jesus say? Hey, we got to go. Imagine the confusion on Peter's face because that's not really the way the world works. We're like, man, this thing's getting traction. Jesus, you got to get back here. Everybody's here. This thing's really happening. Come on, let's let's throw some more let's throw some more uh, wood on the pile. Let's get this thing burning higher and higher. Jesus, no, we're we're out of here. He avoids this. He doesn't run around in fancy clothes with some ridiculous looking hat, and he doesn't ride in some funky looking car. No, he's dressed just like the rest of us. But here, here, he does something really unusual, doesn't he? Here, notice what they're saying. If you look at verse 38, what are they saying? Well, first, if we back up, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice. So there's this rejoicing that's taking place. There's praise taking place. In other words, there's worship taking place. They're, they're rejoicing, they're praising God with a loud voice for all of the mighty works. Now, the raising of Lazarus would have been one of those mighty works. And, of course, all of the other miracles would have been included in as well. And in verse 38, they say, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, what is significant about that? What's significant about that is that they are quoting from a psalm, Psalm 118, which is a psalm that was sung at the time of Passover, would have been known, everybody, uh, just like we know some of the old hymns. If someone starts singing them, we might not have heard them in a while, but away we go. Great is thy faithfulness. We hardly need to look at the lyric because we know the words. But what's unique about Psalm 118 is Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm. It was recognized as messianic. In other words, it spoke of the Christ who was to come, the anointed one, the deliverer. And by saying this and by chanting this, by proclaiming this in verse 38, what are they saying? They're saying that Jesus is none other than the Messiah who was promised all through the Old Testament. Here he is. He has come. There he is. Praise him. And Jesus doesn't do anything 
to stop it, does he? If Jesus was not God in the flesh, it would have been utterly blasphemous for him to allow this worship and praise to take place like this. But he is God in the flesh, and therefore this is totally fitting. And that's why he says to his enemies in verse 39, the Pharisees in the crowd say to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And in verse 40 he answers, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would cry out. Now, how are we to understand that? Are we to understand that to say if the whole crowd would suddenly shut up and there'd be silence on the hillside, that God would give vocal cords to the rocks and they would start praising Him? No. Jesus is speaking proverbially here. This is a proverb. And what is meant by it is this thing, is, this thing cannot be stopped. This thing shall not be stopped. This thing shouldn't be stopped that this is fitting. This is of the Lord. It's fitting. Isn't it fitting that the king should come into Jerusalem this way? Why should the praise stop? Ah, it, seems, it seems like everything is great, doesn't it? If we stop there and we say, well, amen. Let's close in prayer. Seems like everything's going great, doesn't it? Well, except for what Luke offers us here. Luke tells us in verse 41 that at one point, as Jesus draws near, probably a point in the road on the way down to the Mount of Olives, he looks over and gets a good view of the city, the city of Jerusalem. And what does he do? He weeps. He weeps. He weeps while everyone is celebrating. Jesus is crying. Now, why is that? I think if we were the disciples, we'd say, man, look at this. This thing's going great. This is, this is just going great. This is going wonderful. What could possibly be wrong? Lord, what's wrong with you? What are you crying for? Well, we're not left in the dark here. Jesus says in verse 42, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. The things that make for peace. What is the problem? Well, they're coming to Jesus, all right. They're coming to Jesus. But they have the wrong idea of who Jesus is. They've got the wrong idea. What do, what do they really want? What do, what do the people really want? What do they see as their greatest need? Their greatest need, and what are they hoping that Jesus will do is come in and he'll kick the Romans out and send them on back to Rome. That's what Jesus, that's, that's what they're hoping for. Here comes our king, and he's going to run these guys out of here, and this, this whole thing's going to return back to the heyday of, of the Davidic kingdom. It's going to be like the old days. We're going to go back to the good old days. Is that what Jesus come to do? They got the wrong idea. They got the wrong idea. What is Jesus on about? Jesus is on about the things that make for peace. Now, what does that mean? Well, Jesus' first priority, and Luke has been, Luke has been saying this all along, Jesus' first priority is reconciliation with the Father. I mean, let's just, just keep your place here in Luke 19, and I'll just show you a few passages that, that, that 
you'll be able to see what I'm talking about. If you go back to chapter 5, there, there's a remarkable passage in chapter 5. If you look at verse 17, famous story, subject of many Sunday school lessons. If you look at verse 17, chapter 5, one of those days as Jesus was teaching Pharisees and teachers of the law, were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And notice verse 20. And when he saw their faith, he said... Get up and walk. That's not what he said, is it? He said, man, your sins are forgiven. Notice the priority. It's terrible that you can't walk. It's horrible that you can't walk. Because the fact that you can't walk means you can't work. And the fact that you can't work means you can't earn a living. And the fact that you can't earn a living means you can't eat or find shelter or find a home or do any of those things. But that's not your greatest problem. Your greatest problem is you cannot stand in God's court. And that is where you're going to find yourself very shortly. But I got good news for you. Because of your faith, your sins are forgiven. Do you see Jesus' priority there? That's our priority. That's Jesus' priority. Look at, look at Luke chapter 10. Just go to chapter 10. You can see Luke is making, he's making noise about this. There's other passages. I'm going to give you three, but there are more. If we, if we just read through Luke, I'm sure we'd find more of them. If you look at chapter 10, verse, uh, seven, or verse 1, Luke 10, verse 1, there the Lord appoints 72 of His disciples and He sends them on ahead of Him two by two into every town and place where He Himself was about to go. So He sends 72 of these disciples out ahead of Him. And then if you scroll down to verse 17, there you see that the 72 return and they return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in Your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's the God, lowercase g, of this world, falling from heaven like lightning. In verse 19, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. But notice what he says in verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. See his priority? See his priority? If you back up to chapter 9, look at verse 23. There he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For who would ever save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life for my sake will save it. And verse 25, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? and loses or forfeits 
himself. Again, you see the priority. Jesus' number one priority is not who's in the Oval Office. Jesus' number one priority is not health care, nor is it any of the other 21st century, the long list of 21st century American luxuries. His priority is peace with God. That's his, the things that make for peace. What are they? Reconciliation with the Father. But it also involves peace with each other. I mean, in our sin, we're so quick to dismiss our, our brothers and sisters who are out there. We're so quick to dismiss uh, uh, our neighbors. We're so quick to just dismiss people, aren't we? And, and we can be so quick to even slander them. One thing that I'm really amazed by is how comfortable we can be sometimes in indifference. Think about that. We default to indifference towards the people that are around us. I mean, our hearts are so hard that only God can soften them. You know, the world thinks that the worst thing that can happen to us is that we get cancer. And, I, you know, I wrestled with whether saying that because it's such a sensitive thing. If you come down with cancer, it's, it's awful. And I mean, no, I, I'm not trying to be insensitive here. I'm trying to drive a point home. And I'm saying this because I hear this all the time. And I think to myself when I hear things like this, I'm thinking, do we get it? And I'm nervous that we don't get it. We think that the worst thing that could happen to us is cancer or any of those other terminal conditions. Those are bad things. But that's not the worst thing that can happen to us. The worst thing that can happen to us is that we die in our sins apart from Christ. That's the worst thing that can happen to you. And that's where Jesus' priority is. So while everyone celebrates, Jesus weeps. He's weeping because they're not getting it. He's weeping because the door of salvation is closing. He's weeping because he knows that they're going to be hollering, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And that door is going to close. And judgment's going to come to this city. And in 70 AD, it comes just like Jesus says. When the Romans destroy the city of Jerusalem, Historians tell us that that city was so destroyed that future people who would walk in the midst of the rubble would hardly be able to believe that anyone even ever dwelt there. The world thinks that the worst thing that can happen is that we get cancer. I, I hear that sometimes, and I hear... I hear that sometimes in the church, too, that the worst thing that could happen to us is a terminal illness. Everyone's celebrating. Jesus is weeping. And it makes me think of uh, the old hymn. Um, I listen to this uh, CD by Indelible Grace all the time. I forget what. I just let it play over and over again. I forget what the title of the CD is. But they've done, taken all these old hymns and the theology of these old hymns is it's incredible, you know, and they've, they've kind of put you know, modern music to them. That, and there's an old, old hymn that uh, did Christ over sinners weep. Shall our cheeks be dry? 
let floods of penitential tears burst forth from every eye. What a powerful line to pull us out of our indifference and to set our, our, our priorities with Jesus' priorities. I have in my notes here, what practical application do we get here? I think we've already touched on quite a few, but I have a few here, and then I'll move to a more positive light to close. But the first that I have written down here is that the real Messiah, He comes to us humble and mounted upon a donkey, doesn't He? Again, He's not coming on a war horse. The people would have liked Him to come on a stallion. But he comes humble and mounted upon a donkey. Now, if our master comes to us humble and mounted on a donkey, how should we be proud? You see, there's just no place for pride in our lives, is there? There's just no place for it. And if the real Messiah prioritizes peace with God, then should we make peace with God our first priority? I mean, if, if Jesus' first priority is peace with God, should we make peace with God second or third or tenth? And the real Messiah is King. He's Lord. He is Christ. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. He is King. He is Lord. Shouldn't His place, shouldn't His Word have that reign in our hearts and in our lives because He is King? And the real Messiah weeps over lost sinners. There's no room for us to be indifferent, is there? This is a challenge to me, you know. Um, I've been using the pronoun we through this whole thing. I dare not use the pronoun you to somehow not include myself in this. I'm a, I, 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 I acknowledge that this is a we thing here, isn't it? We. Now, on a positive note, it's only as we receive the real Jesus that we see His beauty. They're excited on the hillside. They're excited. They're excited about their dreams coming true. But that's keeping them from seeing the real beauty of Jesus. We can get excited about our dreams coming true. And let's be sure that we haven't come to Jesus so that our dreams will come true. That's not his purpose. He didn't come so that our dreams could, be, could come true. See, that'll keep us from seeing his real beauty. We'll never see his real beauty that way. We'll never see his real beauty unless we come to him as he has offered to us in the gospel. That's the only way that we'll see his real beauty. And again, I, I don't know any other way to do this than to just use the old hymn writers, you know. Alas, and did my Savior bleed? And did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? Well, that warms up our hearts, don't it? I like this line. Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree, amazing pity, grace unknown, love beyond degree. Or this one. Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when the incarnate maker died. 
for man, his creature's sin. It's only when we see Jesus, our mediator, dying in our place, being raised on the third day, preparing a place, loving us so much that he makes a place for us to go to. It's only then will we begin to get a taste of his glory, isn't it? It's only then will we get a taste of his beauty. Because you see, he solves our biggest problem. He loves us so much that he solves our biggest problem. And your anxiety about all these other problems is going to diminish as you find that your big problem's gotten fixed. Because it sets all of our other problems in proper place and puts us, it puts us in sync with the Lord. Amen. Let's receive him as he's offered to us in the gospel, the real Messiah. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you have been pleased to reveal to us your very heart. You've revealed to us your love, your grace, your mercy. You've revealed to us, O oh Father, in so many capacities, in so many ways, our sinfulness. O oh Father, as we gather ourselves up from the, 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 the prick of all of this, Father, as we gather ourselves up, our hearts pricked by this, O oh Father, we are comforted by your love. We are comforted, O oh Father, by, uh, by the beauty of our Lord and Savior. Help us, O oh Father, to see Jesus as he is offered, offered to us in the gospel, that we see him with ever greater clarity, and that we would truly take these things to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.